We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to my bloody podcast, your favorite horror podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Very happy to be here with a new episode this week. This is episode number 66, and it's a doozy. It's a great one. I can't wait to talk about this. I know I've talked about this many times, our feature presentation today, but I'm just so happy to be back talking about all things horror on my bloody podcast, of course. I'm Brian Kluger with Boomstick Comics and High Def Digest, and of course, the man inside me, (laughs) Preston Barta from the Denton Record Chronicle and FreshFiction.tv. How was that for you, sir? Good. (laughs) I just ripped it out of your stomach. Oh, that's so good. Uh, Of course, our main feature presentation today is... A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge from 1985, and of course, The Man Inside Me. We're going to talk about all sorts of good things. Preston, you doing all right? I know you said you're a little under the weather. You, you've, you've got a lot, of, a lot of stuff building up in you that you have to get out. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just have a little bit of a temperature and just feeling like I'm got a like I'm hungover, like no energy, like right after, cause I did a, an interview yesterday. And as soon as I finished that interview, I went home and I was just like dead. I wanted to die. My wife is a witch doctor. And so she's got all these like gypsy oils, just like uh, lavender and things like that. Does she I chant just, and shit around you? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Full on craft. Oh my um, goodness. So when you're feeling under the weather, like you just wanted to die, like some people just want to watch really happy movies or TV shows. Yeah. Do you go to horror or what do you do? I usually go to Harry Potter. I was really wanting to watch it, but at the same time I was just like, eh, I need to, I got so much I got to do. And so, uh, yeah, but normally like a sick day or a rainy day, I usually watch one of the first five Harry Potter films. All right, all right. So that's a little horror there for you. I like it. Yeah, there, there, there's some in there. I, I I do watch some horror. It's kind of lighter horror, but usually my go-to is uh, the TV series Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I love that show. It, like Michael Kelso says on that, that 70s show, when he's talking to Hyde, he's like, Hyde watches Little House on the Prairie. He's like, it reminds me of a simpler time. <laughs> it does. It reminds me of simpler times. Uh, so, yeah, we have a good show. We got bloody questions. We got bloody recommendations. But a first on the list, the bloody bits of news few horror things that should strike your fancy. First off, uh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, it, it'll, be, it'll behoove you to head um, to a live script reading of The Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. 
I think they knew we were doing Nightmare on Elm Street 2 today on the podcast, so they announced this. But uh, it's going to be... Yeah. Yes, they did. It is going to be performed, performed at 1 p.m. on Sunday, September 8th uh, at the world-famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go in Los Angeles. And it is going to bring back Robert England, Heather Landcap, Ira Hyden, Rodney Eastman, Bradley Gregg, Penelope Sudro, and Brooke Bundy. People from the Nightmare on Elm Street three, the dream, the Dream Warriors. I'm very excited. They're gonna, they're all gonna be there. And this has to, this this has to be more of my theory that Robert England wants to do Freddy again. I mean, all these things are happening. Preston, what do you think? Do, does it say that uh, Patricia Arquette's gonna be there, or is uh, it just? The, the the other the surrounding cast members the surrounding cast uh, unfortunately I guess so it doesn't say like who's gonna fill in her part um, I don't think so um, I'm I'm looking at it right now and it doesn't say who's filling in her part but it's definitely not her which is very unfortunate I feel like she should go back to it for a day take the yeah, day I mean, off. if you got if you got all those people but I don't know what her prior commitments or commitments at the moment are but uh that's exciting i have always wanted i've never been to a script reading but i hear about all those ones that quentin tarantino does and uh i know joseph gordon levitt was a part of one it might have been a tarantino one but they they'll they'll have like other actors come in and read different parts and so i don't know that just sounds exciting with the idea of most of the cast members coming back to do uh arguably the best sequel in the Freddy franchise, no offense to Freddy revenge lovers. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago that they were talking about doing some sort of, uh, legacy sequel to the third one or even like remaking, uh, dream warriors. So I don't know how, if, uh, this is just going to spark some interest, and getting that going again, or if, like you said, this is going to be like a stepping stone for Robert England to fully commit to possibly coming back to play Freddy again. Right. Um, it's, and you know, you, you really hope he comes out in the full makeup and costume. Like you really do. Like, yeah, there's just, I, I can't see I wonder, him not can't, doing it. I, I know he's done the voice at like Comic Con conventions and Sci Fi expos and things like that, but uh, it just seems like for something that that long of uh, you know a script reading for it to be like an hour and a half long that you would want to I don't know if he can like fully immerse himself into that world without having the makeup on since he's so used to it I, I don't know I'd be curious to know how that's gonna how that's gonna look. Like I would hope, I would hope he would do it. Um, in, in addition to this, uh, the other roles of the uh, of the film will be played by other actors from the Elm Street uh, film series, including Amanda Weiss from the original Elm Street, uh, Tuesday Night, and Brooke Feast. And then the narration, all like the uh, prose passages, will be narrated by the Dream Warriors director Chuck Russell. Cool. So, uh, yeah, head like I mean, shit. I wish there was stuff like that here in Dallas because I would absolutely go to that. Yeah, we just need to be in LA, I guess. That's where all the good stuffs happening. Right, right. So, if you're in LA and you're listening, you uh, hopefully there's still. They should just take it on tour. 
Oh As my it does goodness. well, just take it on tour. Yeah, you could. So, like, the the ticket sales are going to uh, a benefit um, of mental health services, which makes sense cool. for the Dream Warriors. So, um, but, you know, that would be awesome if they did that. They could probably sell out most places, I would imagine. Yeah, like, even if they did, like, Alamo type of settings, which is something that's, like, up their alley. Um, I think it would sell out each time. There you go. There you go. Interesting. Interesting. I like it. All right. Let's move on to another bit of news, another bloody bit. Uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, This is uh, the sequel, the, the season two of The Haunting of Hill House. Mike Flanagan, the creator and director of the uh, first series, which everybody loved, is has returned and is called The Haunting of Bly Manor and said that Henry Thomas will be returning to the series as well, which is super cool. Um, I think that's uh, pretty much all we have right now. Uh, however, he said later this week or early next week will be more casting news and more information but he uh, said, Mike Flanagan said that he thinks this is scarier than the first season already. So now I'm curious about The Haunting of Bly Manor now. Yeah. Uh, so Gar- Carla Giacchino is back too as well, right? I, I, remember, I remember reading that a couple of months ago, I believe. Uh, okay. I know that she had expressed a lot of interest in being a part of it. And if Mike Flanagan asked that she would do it. But uh, I think I remember reading that. Um, so I guess with her and... Henry Thomas, uh, they're kind of doing this whole like full on American horror story type thing where they're working with the same actors playing different characters, which is, which is good. Cause I really like, I, like even them in Gerald's game, they were great together, um, or apart, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I'm interested in seeing like what, how they'll, uh, separate themselves from the characters they played in Haunting of Hill House and then going into this one. Um, and, uh, and I think I'm, what I'm most interested in is Mike Flanagan since he also did Dr. Sleep, which is coming out in November. So he's been so focused in this kind of like horror arena and like things that deal with houses and atmosphere and tone and how he's going to differentiate all those different properties uh, and make them not seem so much like they're all pulling from the same pool, I guess. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm curious to see if it's a, if his skills in that area are going to seem, I don't know, oversaturated. I don't know how to say it, but you know what I mean. No, I know what you mean. Uh, I they did such a good job with the first one night i'm do you I mean do you think by doing it this way or even kind of like a same setting do you think it'll get redundant or do you think they'll go in a different that's direction? that's what i'm wondering because you know i i thought about that with um james wan you know hopping between the conjuring franchise and insidious where you know, they have like a same kind of visual look a little bit, although conjuring they're like period pieces. And so they have like a more calculated aesthetic while, uh, insidious is more, a little more loose. But after a while, like 
it just seems like when you're like hitting at the same kind of material that, especially for something that's a little, little bit longer, if it is going to feel a little bit redundant or if they're going to be spinning their wheels. But I mean, Mike Flanagan hasn't showed any signs of slowing down from my perspective. So I think he, he could very well just continue to shock and wow us by uh, just know working within the same parameters that he's been and still creating really awesome sand castles right right i uh i think i think you're right so yeah i mean it's great to see these characters coming back and we'll just i guess we'll wait and see what they do with it um it's kind of an interesting take kind of like preston said with american horror story doing it with this series so yeah i mean I don't have no reason to dislike Flanagan yet. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, other bloody bits of news. So, It Chapter 2 is coming out very soon, but now there's talk of It Chapter 3, and why the fuck not? Because it's probably going to make $500 million or more. Uh, so, Preston, you know more about this It Chapter 3 rumor, don't you? Yeah, as far as I know, and I'm not going to speak about like how things wrap up in Chapter 2 in case there's people who have not read the book or have seen the original TV movie, but um, I mean, you can only assume it goes one way, but uh, as far as I know about this potential third chapter, if it doesn't happen, if it does happen, in fact, because uh, there's it's only being like tossed around, the idea has been kicked around. But uh, it hasn't been, like, announced, officially announced. But uh, I assume, like, at this point, especially with probably how successful It Chapter 2 is going to be, um, that is pro- it, it probably will happen. It'll be interesting because it's going to be, like, um, this is probably a, a bad example, but it's the only thing I can think of at the moment is, you know, Big Little Lies came from, like, focused on the only source material that is out there about that show, and then... Um, I guess Game of Thrones does that too, where they kind of go off on their own from the source material. And so as far as I know, they would be doing like a prequel idea of like a younger Pennywise, you know, being around for a long time, haunting kids. So it could be a whole new adventure uh, with a whole new cast to kind of explore his past a little. Um, I hope it doesn't go so much into, cause I really like that mystery aspect too. I mean, we get like little glimpses of it throughout it, uh, throughout it. Um, but it, it, you know, when you're like dealing with like origin stories, it kind of sucks that mystery out. But if they just still just made it feel like a continuation, even though it's the beginning, I guess, if they just, you know, he haunted another set of kids uh, and then didn't try to make it like the Hobbit where they're the Hobbit movies that is where they're trying to like connect it in really stupid ways. So as long as it feels like it, it's existing on its own, um, but still has like that same kind of tone and feel, I think it, it could happen and be good, especially if, uh, uh, Muschietti, Andy Muschietti, the director is behind it. Right. Right. I, I and Bill Skarsgård as it, he's a very good, it Pennywise. Yeah, he's good. He's very good. Um, yeah, so we'll update you more on It Chapter 3 if it happens. And, of course, we will both be talking about It Chapter 2 in a week or two. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to 
a bit of news about Castle Rock Season 2 um, premiering in October. Castle Rock, the Stephen King universe setting uh, Season 1 featured a bunch of really cool things such as Shawshank and everything like that. But it looks like Misery is coming to Season 2. Lizzie Kaplan will be playing a young Annie Wilkes, of course, played by Kathy Bates in the original film. Uh, Castle Rock Season 2 will premiere October 23rd on Hulu. And it looks like uh, Tim Robbins will be returning in Season 2. Well, not returning, but he's coming aboard Season 2. Of course, he was in Shawshank. Um, Elsie Fisher is coming to the show. Uh, It's just kind of crazy. And uh, Greg Grunberg who, of course, is in every J.J. Abrams project. Hmm. So um, I'm I'm very, very it's curious. Cool yeah. Uh, in season two, a feud between warring clans comes to a boil when budding psychopath Annie Wilkes, Stephen King's nurse from hell, gets waylaid in Castle Rock is what uh, I'm reading right now. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And, of course, J.J. Abrams, you know, Greg Grunberg. What, what do you think about this? I haven't watched any of it yet, uh, but I hope to catch up with it because I am a very big Stephen King fan. Uh, But that cast has me pretty excited about, uh, I guess, where it could go from there after I find out where it started. But um, I don't know. That's a a cool cast. It's kind of like a different cast, not like just, all right, here's all your heavy hitters. Like this is like people who have been kind of out of the spotlight for a while and, Hey, uh, keeping it low key and just kind of coming together for something that might be pretty meaningful to people. Right. Now this is uh, sounds cool. And I'd like to see Lizzie Kaplan of all people play yeah. any Wilkes. That'd be pretty yeah. badass. Oh, that'll be cool. Um, there you go. Now, cool. we'll, we'll update you on that. And now on to, uh, we have two more little bloody bits. We want to like little mini reviews of things we've done this past week. And one of those things we both watched is a movie called The Fanatic. Stars John Travolta and Devin Sawa, who thought was we all thought was lost uh, in Hollywood for a number of years, but has returned. Hollywood couldn't keep him. Yes, correct. <laughs> and then... The movie, The Fanatic, is directed by Limp Bizkit, uh, frontman Fred, Fred Durst. Durst. And so, okay, so we both watched the movie, and I'm yeah. I'm curious, Preston. I'm very curious. I mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit before, yeah. but holy God. So my first thing is, in my opinion, the movie's bad. And it's so bad and insane and weird that you just kind of have to watch it at some point because you're just like, how did this all happen and come together? Who said yes to this? And then I hear from a few people that there are reviews for this movie going out saying it's like some of the best work ever. And I'm like, huh? I didn't see the same movie. So Preston, am I in the wrong here? Am I the only one thinking this way? Yes, Brian. No, no. You're not. So this is the first time I'm going to be speaking publicly about my thoughts on this film uh, because I did interview John Travolta for it, who's a very nice man. I've interviewed him twice, and he's just nothing but warm and appreciative. But, you know, it's still my job to be as honest as possible as a journalist. And so watching the movie, I did not like it. I don't think it's a very good movie at all. Um, I think there's some interesting things to kind of take away from it. 
but I think they've been highlighted in better projects. Yeah, like you said, it's a very strange movie. It, it's I, I hate to compare it to something, but but you know, like the room. But that's just where I'm taking it because, like you said, Tommy uh, Wiseau's the room, not the yeah, Brie Larson. Correct, <laughs> the room, not room. Um, it's it's like a movie that exists in its own world. Like people behave, and and, and it's not just because the main character that John Travolta plays, uh, Moose, is not uh, because he's on the spectrum. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, like certain things happen throughout the movie that are a little bit puzzling and nobody reacts like a human being actually would. It's like Fred Durst just doesn't know like how to really make a movie, craft a movie, like an honest movie. Like there's dialogue, especially like a, a narration that happens in the movie where it's, uh, one of, uh, Moose's, uh, I guess friends, even though there's not really much of a development there other than that. She's just kind of like around, she provides the narration and says stuff like, you know, sometimes when you put your hand in the cooking jar, you have to go back for more. And then there's like another one where he's like, he not only crossed the line, he fucking obliterated it or nuked it. So it's just like a lot of like eye rolling moments. And I'm sure they put a lot of love into trying to make this, but you know, sometimes it just doesn't amount to anything. And so I found some things interesting, especially the relationship between celebrity and fame or celebrity and fan. Uh, But that's been explored in, like I said, better projects like misery or something like that, which is heavily being compared to just because it's dealing, it has a concept of that and being a a quote horror film. Yeah. it, It didn't work for me. I mean, I could sit here all day and I would love to do like a commentary for it to go like, uh, play by play because my wife watched it with me and we honestly had a really hard time getting through it. So I'm pretty baffled that a lot of these critics tossing good, good thoughts its way. And so I, yeah, I, I don't understand. I'm like, did we see the same movie? I don't know. Like, it, it just seems like something that after you watch it, like the, it, it would have a universal uh, opinion of it being bad and I, I don't know. I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know if it has to deal with like, you know, uh, if you're interviewing John Travolta that you, you almost feel like you're persuaded to give a good opinion, but, uh, I'm just not going to play that game. Um, no, you shouldn't. No, and no. people who no. do are fake. They're not, they don't do it. They're, they're, they're not professional if they're doing that. No, That's ridiculous. No, no. So I, um, I did have a really good convo with John Travolta. We talked about some things that I found interesting, but I, you know, I didn't have to talk about what I thought about the movie with him. Um, and I didn't, I did not write a review for this film. So good on you, Brian, for writing one out. I I really wanted to, after I started seeing, uh, especially uh, a lot of people that I know, (laughs) uh, give it good reviews, which is probably shitty to say, but you know, that's just how I feel. Like I, I don't, it's it's just crazy that a lot of good reviews and thoughts are kind of coming out. It's interesting. One of my paragraphs starts in my review starts with this movie is downright bad and most of the time laughable. Sure. <laughs> on one hand, you'll laugh at the actions and performances that seem so over the top that you think you're watching something made for Mystery Science Theater 3000. 
Well, on the other hand, the, the film gives us a glimpse of the more horrifying side of fame and being a fan. And it's a two-way street that I think Fred Durst, Fred Durst kind of shows both sides, but his way of going about it is so kind of tongue-in-cheek and not believable. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. And like, it, it, It's like an, an observation that he's had, even though he's been in the in the position of being somebody that has, you know, is famous, but it's almost like he has no understanding of it. Right. Right. Yeah. And like the, the film goes back and forth and between what it wants to convey. And I think Fred Durst can tell a decent story with the camera, but he's not focused at all here. And it just goes all over the place and I think, like, either if you think this is a great film or the worst film, there is no doubt to me that you'll be talking about the time Travolta went complete Nick Cage in a movie. <laughs> and it's just, it's unbelievably to watch Nick C- or to watch John Travolta because you'll see, like, very quick flashes of John Travolta, the actor, like, holy shit, there's John Travolta, like, being a badass like he's an act like the great actor that he can be but then most the other time he's like a parody of all these characters that is just so frustrating in upright downward painfully awkward to watch and (laughs) oh my goodness this movie is bad but it's like so strange and bad that i think it's like you'll have to watch it at some point just don't pay to watch this movie you're just like Oh shit! I heard about this, and how far can I get through it? It's a very strange movie. It's a very strange movie and really weird. Uh, the fanatic, and like I said, it's really weird when you know you've been around colleagues for a number of years, and then you see something like this, and then you see them talk about how great this movie is it uh, it baffles me and it, uh, it actually has me questioning them you know not like as people but like as professional critics because <laughs> i don't get it and so uh and, and on one thing i pride myself in and i know Preston does that we're always brutally honest well, we, if, we, tr- we strive to be, we, str- we really strive to be. I, I mean, I'm not like after this movie with a pitchfork. It's just, you know, for the amount of movies that we see, like, you know, I, I want them to be good. I really do. And uh, it's just sometimes those don't work out. Um, I just think overall that most people will, uh, should agree with our thoughts on, on this and it not being a, a great movie. Right. And I mean, literally, if I were to tell you that Devin Sawa, Fred Durst, and John Travolta made a movie together, you'd probably wait for the punchline as if I were telling a joke. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> You're like, fuck you. No, no, it's not. And you're like, no, it's 2019. <laughs> it's happened. And it's uh, it's weird. So there you go. The fanatic. If you If you are hard pressed to seek it out, good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Um, and then our last little mini review of the day um, that brings an end to our bloody bits of news. Uh, Mondo has released the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack on vinyl. 
and I believe Preston got a copy and is going to talk about all the artwork and the sweet sounds on vinyl of this soundtrack. Absolutely. Yeah, I got, as soon as I got the email about this vinyl's existence from, from Mondo, like, I, I could not respond fast enough. Uh, the Blade Runner films are two of my, you know, favorite all-time films, and most of its success in my eyes, aside from it being a living, breathing piece of artwork, is is how the score for the films kind of invite you in with their atmospheric, dreamy, and pulsing tracks. And Vangelis, of course, scored the original 1982 Blade Runner, and the bar was high for whoever was going to step into this 2017 sequel. I know that the late Johan Johansson, who worked with uh, director Denis Villeneuve on, I believe, The Arrival and Sicario. So originally he was working on the score for the film, but he later had to depart because supposedly he had difficulty bringing that dreamlike quality that it needed. For somebody to step in for Johansson, I don't think there was a better choice to achieve that tone than uh, Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish. Most people could probably know who Hans Zimmer is, but Wallfish, if the, the name doesn't ring a bell, uh, he composed uh, the music for both It movies. And he uh, previously worked in the music department alongside uh, Hans Zimmer on films like The Cure for Wellness and Dunkirk. He's done a lot of like horror stuff, which makes him really good for this area. Like intense movies, he, he, he knows how to like really uh, crank it up. And I listen to this score for Blade Runner 2049 uh, all the time. It's one of my favorite uh, or one of my go-to albums when I write. I, there's, a, there's this great YouTube channel that does like this 10-hour long uh, video of music that's like Blade Runner and from Blade Runner. And it's like played to like rain. And it's just like a really pleasant mood to kind of write in. So, um, yeah, I, I was all on board for getting this uh, vinyl. But uh, so... Mondo released a uh, double vinyl that includes the score for Blade Runner 2049, and it, it's it's pretty incredible. Like I, I've played it quite a few times in my house, and it's easier to play because it's not haunting notes like the rest of the scores I have. It's more digestible music and exists on its own, where some scores you can listen to them on their own, and they don't function as well without the movie. And this score does, in my opinion... Uh, one of my favorite tracks is uh, Flight to LAPD, and it plays during the moment in the film where Kay, uh, who's Ryan Gosling's character, arrives at his headquarters, and we explore the like the model landscape of the city in the rain, and we see how it's changed over the past 30 years. Most of it feels the same, but uh, advertising is a big influence in the film with uh, projected images playing out in the street and that uh, Asian influence, and, and the vinyl release leans into that uh it was designed by artist uh victor kalvachev i believe that's his name um but you can look up his work on uh kalvachev.com i think you, you spell it uh, k-a-l-v-a-c-h-e-v.com uh, he's done a lot of work of dc comic characters uh like batman and wonder woman he has a very unique style that that looks kind of looks vintage with a modern touch. Like a lot of his works look like the kind of art you would see for like old school cigarette ads, 
but the people that occupy the frame have a, a, a modern look to them. They almost look like game characters or some of them kind of have like this Ron Muick kind of look to it. If you know who Ron Muick is, you did like a lot of the life, like just like really creepy lifelike sculptures of people. He worked on the movie Labyrinth from the eighties. Right. So yeah, very distinct style that feels like a, a snowball of a lot of different styles. But the artwork for this album uh, has the projected Joy character, who's played by Ana de Armas in the film. It's when she's pink and this the size of a giant. She's naked and she's uh, bent up, crouched over, and she's holding a like glowing K in in the palm of her hand while it's raining. Uh, but the level of detail with the art is like really spectacular. The the rain has a different texture on the album. Like uh, you can touch it and feel it, uh, or you can like look at it in the light and like just kind of turn it, and you can like see that it has a different uh, layer on it. Um, so it's really cool. Um, and the text of it, uh, most of it's kind of like along the edge, the left edge when you're looking at the album. It has like this text that kind of resembles like a lot of the, the Asian signage and all that ads that they have in the movie. So instead of it feeling like, instead of it being just like a, a mere poster of the film, which I do like the posters for these films, but... Uh, this almost feels like an album that you could buy within the world of Blade Runner. And also inside the flap, um, there's an image of the sculptures all destroyed and laying on the ground. It's from the sandy area that uh, Rick Deckard, uh, Harrison Ford's character, lives. Uh, and the vinyls themselves are uh, pink and blue, and they fit like the, the neon street glow. Um, so it kind of fits into that. Uh, with the rest of it kind of having that like dirty, grimy uh, kind of look with like certain areas popping. So overall, it's a, it's a really immaculate release and it looks great um, on the shelf and, just, and it sounds really great on the record player. So uh, if you visit my Instagram at Preston Barta, uh, you can see what it looks like and what it sounds like. I took pictures of what it looks like inside and out and included a video of what it sounds like. But you can uh, purchase the album for $40 through mondotees.com. And it's a deal for the amount of detail that went into its creation. Uh, so it's not just for record collectors, but I, I would say art collectors as well. There you go. The 2049 Blade Runner. Uh, do you have an original, uh, the original film soundtrack too? I don't have, no, I have them on Laserdisc. Um, <laughs> do you have a Laserdisc player? I do not have a laser disc player. Not anymore, at least. Um, no, I just collect it for the, the artwork. Um, so I, I have uh, like three different versions of Blade Runner on Laserdisc. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm out for the, the original soundtrack, but I, I think it'd be pretty hard. I would have to buy a, a re-release, and I, th- I don't know if Mondo's done the original one or not. I imagine they probably have. I don't know if they've done the original one. I have an original one, but uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if they've done that. I can't remember. But yeah, again, mondotees.com. Get them, get them records. Get them records. But uh, now we are done with the bloody bits of news, and we're going to move on to the bloody question of the week, which is a fun one, a super fun one. Uh, 
uh, in in relation to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, the question asked this week is, if you were Freddy Krueger for a week, what would be your most creative kill? So if you got to be Freddy Krueger, what would be your favorite and most creative kill you would do? You have all the supernatural abilities as well as the real-world physical ones. So, Preston. Mine would be if you were a student coming back from... Uh, school and you're walking through your front yard or if you have like some dick neighbor if I was Freddy Krueger I would have like a garden hose that's out in the yard and it just starts acting like a snake and it strikes like the victim in the stomach and then pulls back and it has a piece of the intestines and it just rips it out and then uh the you know how you can like store garden hoses and like wind them up um i would have the the hose wind up and then collect the intestines uh slowly into the garden hose storage wow. so that would be yeah uh, i was trying to think of something that more so because I, I i thought of like uh i think it's return of the blob or the blob where like somebody gets like sucked into a garbage disposal yeah and just like stuff of like people getting harmed by like small spaces uh like even it plays around with like drain pipes uh little holes and being sucked into them like that's terrifying to me so just the idea of a garden hose just uh sucking your intestines up slowly uh would be horrifying and I, i think you could play around with the imagery and make it as unique as dream warriors with uh the puppeteer a moment with the veins. Which is such a good scene, too. Yeah. I love it. I love it. All right. If you want to know what I would do if I was Freddy Krueger? Yeah. My creative one? So, uh, and I, I went the student route, too, but as an, an AV student, <laughs> audiovisual student, uh, is at the movie theater, falls asleep in the movie theater, and then he, in quotations, wakes up. But he can't move out of their seat. They are stuck to the seat, which it starts to heat up and burn through their clothes and skin. The speakers outlining the theater walls turn into Freddy heads that scream loud, which causes the students' ears to bleed and start spurting out blood. All the characters in the movie turn into Freddy and look at the student still in the chair, which leads to the student's eyes to bleed. Then everyone sitting in the audience in the theater turn into Freddy and walk over and stab him simultaneously with the finger knives. Mm. (laughs) No, too much? (laughs) No, no, it's very you. It's very me. How is that very me? You're pretty dark and, uh, uh, yeah, I I couldn't go down that dark of a rabbit hole. Okay, okay. Well, we brought this question to Reddit, and we've got a couple of really fun answers that I'm going to read. Uh, Are you excited, Preston? Oh, yeah. Okay. Rhubarb Man. Rhubarb Man said, pretend to be their dad in their dream. They're a kid again. I run in and say, tickle, monster. They do the usual kid thing, and I start tickling their stomach. Some Freddy shenanigans later, and they can't stop laughing. Then they look down and see their intestines spilled out and slashed to mm. ribbons. 
<laughs> Tickle monster. Yeah. Just removing all the innocence of uh, playtime with your dad. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is something How you can do. How about that with... for playtime? This is something you can do with Roe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, Reichenbaum. Reichenbaum says, a teen character who never puts their phone down the phone grows insect-like legs, jumps up, and att- attaches itself to their head and starts boring into their skull to slurp up their brain. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's that's a good image and very, uh, I think it would be important for today. <laughs> very true, very true. Um, we are the worst one, said, have you looked? Have you look into the night sky to have all the stars turn into infinitely long needles piercing you from the sky? Not very elaborate, but would be an incredible visual. Yeah. Uh, Behind You 92 said, Woman dreams of getting acupuncture, wakes up with Freddy wounds in her back. Mm. And then Easy Lighter... We're going to read this one, even though I shouldn't, because it's dumb. But easy lighter. Put a fire hose in someone's butt and then turn it on. (laughs) All right. And there it is. Uh, But, yeah, the tickle monster, I think, is pretty damn good. Yeah. And, And the phone one, too, is really good as well. Yeah, anything with a phone, like even if it's like you're holding your hand, you know, like sometimes when you've had it on for so long, it begins to get hot and just like melts to your hand or something. Right. So I responded to the guy who uh, suggested the phone grows the insect-like legs, and I said, it's very relevant. I wonder if it would work in in a social media kind of way, too. And Reichenbaum responded with, yeah, that was my first thought, but I'm not sure how you would visually represent a Twitter post literally killing someone. So, I don't know. I think you could do it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it would be changing the rules of Freddy. Well, I mean, you know, in one of the Freddy movies, didn't one of the characters get inside a video game, too? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think all is, uh, there's no limits. So uh, that was our, our uh, question of the week, our bloody question. Please send us an email to mybloodypodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to give us a suggestion or just text one of us, you can text Preston at 911. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So uh, now we're on to bloody recommendations. That's where we suggest a movie, new or old. Uh, that we want you to see, that we want you to just to uh, revisit or see anew, you know, uh, in the horror genre. So, Preston, please, I hope you have a good suggestion this week. You always do, uh, but I'm, I'm curious if you went the route I did. Uh, pro- probably not, but uh, it's... I'm going to speak about it briefly because it goes... Uh, I'll probably speak about it more deeply when we get into our main feature because it's uh, very tied to it. But it's the upcoming Fantastic Fest documentary, Scream, Comma, Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. I was a golden child. I was going to be a movie star. And I remember thinking one day, thank you, Jesus, you gave me everything that I asked for. And then the next day it all went to hell. I wake up in the middle of the first movie that I'm the lead actor in and realize that there's a gay subtext in it. 
A horror film only works if it taps into a paranoia in a particular time and place. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is about the danger of not repressing enough. If he lets himself go to sleep, out comes the queer monster. And it did shut doors, this fear. And people did go back into the closet. I wasn't an out gay actor. I was a gay person, and I was living in terror. My lover was dying. People went through our trash. And my agents are waiting to see if I can play straight. That's what, what made him go a little crazy. As the reputation of this movie started to grow, it sort of became a nightmare. When I first started going to show, people would walk up to my table and tell me how much they hated the movie. Like, what are you doing here? Because of this movie, I began to feel like there was something wrong with me. You had a goal in your life to be a movie star, and you sort of got there. I think it's time that you just let it go. The movie was 30 years ago, and you're still pissed off at Dave Chaskin. I never wrote, you know, he screams like a woman. You know what I mean? Normally when we recommend films or shows, they're about to release or already out, and this film will be making its world premiere at Fantastic Fest in Austin. Uh, so the lineup and schedule hasn't been fully released yet, but it will screen sometime between September 19th and the 26th at the Alamo on South Lamar in Austin. But uh, you can visit fantasticfest.com to get the latest details, and I'm sure... If you come back and listen to us in the weeks leading up to the festival, we'll also share it with you. But anyhow, this uh, documentary focuses on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, but more specifically, uh, actor Mark Patton, who's the, the main talent in the film, and his quest to set the record straight about the famously queer horror sequel. It delves into many of the questions that were raised after the film released in 1985 about the film's gay subtext, or as the documentary shares, uh, just text. Uh, it's pretty apparent when you watch it, but uh, shortly after the, the movie released, uh, audiences, or I guess this article specifically, uh, made all these connections, and audiences began to take notice of how Freddy's revenge kind of deviates from uh, the slasher tropes of Wes Craven's original film, and it positions uh, Mark Patton as this sensitive boy named Jesse Walsh, who also serves as the film's, uh, quote, scream queen. He, he's the only male lead out of the entire franchise. There's the film's homoerotic shower scene where the coach of his high school is whipped by towels while naked. And there's also a scene where Jesse Walsh walks through a leather bar. And there are many more images and scenes that support this analysis. But uh, I, I assume that we're probably going to get into it a little more deeply in the film uh, when we get to Freddy's revenge. But uh, this documentary just kind of answers these questions about, you know, Mark Patton, he played this character, and then uh, the first week, I think it did pretty well, and then re the reception of it kind of changed when this article came out and started making all these connections about how it's a, it's a gay horror film. And um, that had a severe impact on Mark Patton's life, uh, so much so that it – well, also it happened during – the, the HIV and AIDS uh, epidemic at the time in the mid-80s. So the documentary explores that. So we begin with uh, exploring, like, Mark uh, Patton's, like, early life and before they, you know, they lay down the, the groundwork to get you interested to figure out, like, what where this is all going to lead to. But then it gets into his past and leading into 
what he thought was going to be like a life changing experience. And it it ended up being, but not for the reasons that he expected. Um, and so he, uh, kind of just stopped being an actor after that. He went to live in Mexico and just kind of fell off the radar because I mean, his agent suggested that he become a character actor. Um, but he, I mean, he wanted to be so much more than that and he had the talent too, but it's just like the time just made that very difficult for it to happen for him. And so he stepped away. And then after that, uh, what's that documentary uh, Never called? Sleep that, Again? Yep. When that came out, um, he, uh, overheard or heard, uh, the writer of, uh, Freddie's Revenge, uh, say something about, where they kind of like pin the blame of the movie's reception on Mark Patton. And it, it really upset him and he wanted to set the record straight. So that's the point of this documentary is to kind of uh, lead to that interaction between him and uh, David Kaskin, who, who wrote the, the Freddy's revenge and then having discussions with one discussion with him. And then if you watch the trailer, like there's this, kind of like shocking moment of Mark Patton trying to get him to admit that he wasn't, that Mark Patton was not responsible for, and it was written the way that the, you know, the movie is. And, uh, David Kaskin says, uh, well, I didn't write him to scream like a girl. The, The movie is, is interesting that it, that, uh, you know, Mark Patton is like strong enough to like go have these discussions with them. And it's like hard to hear these conversations, like even the one with uh, the director, Jack Shoulder, they have like a discussion like after like, I think the 30th anniversary that they had at a Comic-Con convention, but they had like some pretty uncomfortable talks about um, how Mark Patton seems to be still holding this grudge and it's been 30 years and he should let it go. But yet, you know, it, it was a significant portion of his life during the most important years of his life. And it could have been a, a much different thing. And it's just, uh, it, it was just like hard. It's a tragic story, but I, it's, it's all about healing too. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good documentary. Um, you saw I, it already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I need to see this before fantastic fest. Yeah, it's it's pretty good, uh, but that's also because I'm really interested in because Nightmare on Elm Street is like my favorite horror franchise, um, and so I, I you know take that as you will. So I don't know how well it would play for others uh, who are who not as interested in Nightmare uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but I, I would also say that it's more than just focusing on that film. I, I think a big portion of the film is focused on. Uh, the, the culture during the time that this movie released and um, the, the experience of Mark Patton and uh, how he kind of just came to this realization that um, he needs to be, he needs to speak about his experience so others don't go through the same thing. And so uh, I, I, I would say that it's more than just being a documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street. But uh, for those who are interested in the film, I think it uh, makes the movie more interesting. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, this, yeah, this documentary will play at Fantastic Fest. Um, I hope you all can go see it. Um, I don't know, because this is its world premiere, I don't know when it's actually going to release wide. But um, I imagine it's probably going to play in conjunction of the Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Freddy's Revenge screening that they're actually going to have at Fantastic Fest, but uh, the stars are going to be there. The directors of this documentary are going to be there, so uh, it should be a pretty cool experience. Nice, nice. I can't wait to watch it. I'm definitely down for that. All right, yeah, I didn't go that route, but I kind of did. I didn't, I didn't do a documentary or anything serious, but I think the movie that I'm going to talk about only very briefly, very briefly, because I'd imagine we're going to do a full episode on it, um, is Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell. Horror has many faces. Death wears many different masks. But pure evil wears only one. And this is your final chance to see it. Jason goes to hell the final Friday. And I pick that as my recommendation just because it's a very strange movie. They went a lot of different directions uh, than they ever did with Friday the 13th, kind of like how they did with Freddy's Revenge. And uh, there's also a big homoerotic element to Jason Goes to Hell too like there is in Freddy's Revenge. So um, Jason Goes to Hell is the ninth film um, in the series, and it was kind of like when New Line and the other um, the other studios were breaking up. So if you find a Friday the 13th set, it's usually just the first eight movies, ending with Manhattan. You have to go find the other movies elsewhere. But with Jason Goes to Hell... It's so weird. So basically, this Jason has transferred this e- his evil spirit into other people. And the way he does it is that he French kisses people. <laughs> and one of the things he does is that uh, Jason shaves a guy... <laughs> And then transfers the evil soul to him. It doesn't make sense. But then again, it makes perfect sense. But the movie itself, it's just its just like an interesting way of how they did it. Because after this movie was released, the director talked about how Friday the 13th and Jason, the evil force, is related to the evil dead. And that... Uh, that we'll, we'll get about we'll get into that at another time, but it kind of makes sense in how they showed these demons kind of swirling him and like possessing him to do these bad things is kind of what Jason goes to hell was kind of trying to say that it wasn't just him that was evil, but all these evil spirits in him. And uh, I just think uh, you know. In the same way as Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where there's somebody inside somebody trying to possess them. I don't know. I just thought there was a lot of similar characteristics to it. 
But again, Friday the 13th Part 9, Jason Goes to Hell, is a, still a solid in the franchise and very weird one in the franchise as well. So um, I would just have to go with Jason Goes to Hell. If you can find it, please go, go check it out. So yeah, that is, uh, that is the bloody recommendations. But now we are on to our main event, our main feature presentation, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside him. Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Jesse, fight him! Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my children now. Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> oh my goodness, this movie is insane. Uh, th- this film came out in 1985. And uh, it was directed by Jack Shoulder, um, which... Uh, what what else did he do? Wishmaster uh, two. He did he did the hidden and arachnid. Yes, yes. Not. I mean, this is probably his most famous one. And of course, like Preston said earlier, it stars Mark Patton. And the film came out uh, November first, which is the day after Halloween. And uh, it was on a budget of three million dollars, and it made thirty million dollars. Not bad for nineteen eighty five horror film. Uh, so with this movie, it's interesting because, you know, it doesn't really take place with any of the original characters, per se, um, after the events of the first movie. Yeah, it follows that, like, long history of horror sequels kind of, like, abandoning the existence of the survivors of the previous film and just uh, takes place on the same street, but doesn't have Nancy in this one but she does appear in the third one. Right. So the film, after the events of the first film, Nancy's family have moved out, and a new family has moved in, and all of a sudden this kid, Mark Patton, this high school student, starts to have crazy dreams, and things start to happen, and it finds out that he was like, oh, Nancy lived here a long time ago. People died and stuff like that. But... The the movie itself is like very stripped into the 1980s, and it has that very homoerotic feeling to it. But what's really cool about this movie is that uh, Freddie has very little screen time. Actually, I think he has the least screen time in this movie than any other film. He only has like a few minutes where he's on screen, but when he's on screen, I think he's at his most sadistic here. Like, he's out for blood and killing. He's not about really being funny here that we've come to see. But 
you know, it kind of shows the main character, Mark Patton, kind of going through adolescence, in high school, trying to fit in, girls, and, and just, you know, the kind of stereotypical 80s, like, you don't like your gym coach, the gym coach hates you, and you, you're... Your best, who who turns out to be your best friend is the your worst enemy at first. But then, I don't know. It's just uh, it's it's kind of a cool story. But it oh my goodness, there there's like a dance sequence in the movie when he's cleaning his room, and you have to think like this movie and seeing the documentaries that like there was an agenda here, or if there wasn't, they just wanted to make fun or poke fun at this. But I think, like, the possession angle was really good and having sort of this supernatural thing that can become a physical manifestation out of you was, like, a really cool idea. So, uh, Preston, what what do you think and how do you think this sequel compared to the original? I, I like you, I really found... Uh, this concept to be very interesting. This is kind of like the the ambitious sequel that you make maybe like four or five movies in. Uh, so it's kind of crazy that they did this in the second one. Because, um, you know, if you look at the Friday the 13th franchise, they kind of follow the same formula. And just as you were talking about with Jason Goes to Hell, it's like that was like one of the first ones. I mean, outside of like seven, bring in like telekinetic powers and uh, six, just bring in this whole meta quality to it. Uh, it, it's fascinating to kind of see like the, the areas where they try to be different, but also uh, have some sort of continuation there. And for this, it's just some of that scary imagery and it being set on Elm street, but it doesn't have that sort of, you know, you know, the aspect of being so scared to go to, that you don't want to go to sleep because you're, you're afraid that you're going to be, you know, like sleep paralysis, just be stuck there and just be killed and have, you know, blood go all over the bed and people not knowing like what the hell happened. Um, for this one, this is kind of like a, uh, you know, like a werewolf scenario of like, you know, you're waking up the next day and you're like, what the hell did I do? There's that. And there's like, there's actually a transformation sequence too. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I, I really like this movie. I, I think it's problematic. Sure. But I, I think for a movie, especially like after, you know, being a fan and watching all the others, like this one kind of stands apart just because it's doing some different things. And I like it for doing that. It's daring. Um, that's what, that's I, what I, I like I, about it. That's what I like about it too, because if you go from like three, all the way up to, you know, New Nightmare for the most part. Uh, it's kind of... Or Freddy's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's the same thing. Freddy's after a group of people, uh, rinse, repeat. You know, you're getting kind yeah. of the same thing. But with two, well, the first one introduced us to this, but the second one just, oh man, it, like Preston said, it, it is insane like how they came up with this idea and how kind of like plausible it could be in like a possession or exorcism type of way. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, possession is like one of my greatest fears just because I have sleep paralysis. And so a lot of my sleep paralysis dreams involve like being touched by something and then just slowly feeling like I'm just being pulled down towards hell. 
And so this movie is reflective of those feelings for me, like even from the get go of it opening with, you know, Mark, uh, Patton's character, Jesse Walsh getting on the bus and then the bus just like zooming off. And then you're like, you know, that something strange is going on, but everybody else is like, ah, it's normal. But what's funny is that, you know, uh, Robert England plays the bus driver and you, if you look closely, you can notice that it's him without all the prosthetics, which is cool. But uh, even the imagery, the early imagery of like, you know, the, the bus beating through the town and then you're being like, no, this is not right. And then it goes into the middle of nowhere and then uh, everything like kind of vanishes away. It looks like the gate two, um, with like this, this rock peak, like holding the bus up upright and so i you know like i had not seen this movie in a long time uh, but it's just like that that all that imagery still is it's iconic scary to me no it Very is scary. no i i think that because I, I still constantly think about the bus scene and on like the balancing and like it could fall over yeah and then there's like a, there's a crazy scene of course of when freddie comes out of Mark Patton, and then of course the the swim pool scene where it sets fire and it starts to boil. Like that's scary. Yeah, like I know a lot of people uh, tear that scene apart because it, it it like breaks the rules of 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 Freddy's world of him just kind of killing people within within their nightmares. But you know, it, I, I guess if you try to tie it to Freddy versus Jason, where you know, there's the scene where Freddy actually gets pulled into the real world and then fights. Uh, it, it, I mean, you could argue that same sort of thing uh, for that. And I think that's kind of scary. But like I said, it's very shocking that something like that would be happening in the second film of a franchise. But, you know, they had no idea how much further this franchise would go. But, you know, looking at it in retrospect, it just really stands apart. And that's terrifying that you know, Freddie would go out there and just like slowly terrorize all these kids and block them in such a way where they're, they have nowhere to run. Um, and he could just slaughter them all. No. And he does. And he basically almost does because like, there's like this certain shot of like the fire coming up in Freddie's face, looking at his victims, uh, from behind the fire. And it is so scary. I think that's like him at his most sadistic, like, he has this like growl on his face and you're just, Oh man, that, that, that still gives me the creeps. Yeah. His look is, uh, heightened a little bit more, I would say compared to the first one. Right. Um, so I don't know. This is one of the scariest ones to me, uh, the franchise. Well, I, I think I could recognize, you know, a story might be better in the third one, uh, for sure. And, uh, certain characters and uh, creative kills and things like that, inventiveness with all that. But I think this this movie holds up pretty well. I mean, aside from like looking at it through a 2019 lens with some of the sexual overtones and things like that. But you know, the documentary that I saw, Scream Queen, like kind of explores this more deeply, and it, it almost got me to a point where I'm like, should I feel ashamed? that I like this movie, but I, I am able to like look at it from a surface level and just kind of focus on, uh, just the aspects of possession of this, uh, killer, uh, supernatural killer getting his revenge by 
pinning the blame on somebody else, which is, you know, oddly enough, very reflective of Mark Patton's character, uh, life. But, um, I don't know. It's just, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is still pretty effective, uh, for me. Um, I think a lot of the, you know, even the shower scene, um, just like kind of being in there alone and like hearing noises like the coach does. And then all of a sudden you're just dragged away and stripped and then beaten with towels and then hung. And, uh, it's, it's pretty insane. It is. It is. There, there's like, like I agree with Preston completely. I think this is one of the scariest ones for sure, but it's also, I don't even. I would say it's like the silliest one, but it's, they they went like a different place where they never went before after this uh, yeah. as well. And I just kind of like it stands on its own, you know, uh, because I think the I think part two is kind of the only one that was on its own. The other films kind of had the same characters here and there throughout them. Yeah, there's more of a tie, I guess. It, it, it's crazy, and I, oh my goodness, and I, I want to say Mark Pat, he did a good job, and you mentioned earlier that in the screens, like, I didn't write the character to scream like a girl, but yeah. to the contrary of that, when you're screaming, like, either you're, you know, you're going through puberty, and you have the high voice, or you're just damn scared, and you scream like a girl in a high pitch, like it happened with Bruce Campbell in Evil Dead. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I don't get where the filmmaker was, was saying that, you know, that there's a genuine reaction. Yeah, I it, I don't know. It's, it's really kind of crazy to kind of dive into uh, the writer's intentions on this. Like that, that, that whole area is gray. Um, it, it, and that's what Mark Pat was trying to do with the documentary was kind of color that in and like, uh, make him admit things. Uh, but his intention at the time was to kind of, uh, point out homophobia and, uh, just simply point it out. But, um, things kind of just evolved from there. And so we get what we see in the film. Um, so I don't know, I find it more, uh, fascinating now having seen that documentary, but, uh, uh, I think even after see, haven't seen it for so long, it, it's even more interesting to me just because, you know, looking at it through, you know, the lens of today and uh, all the Freddy movies uh, lined up and then haven't seen them all and then going back to this one. Um, so, yeah, it, it is it is a bit crazy, but I don't know. I, I found myself relating a lot to uh, Mark Patton's character. So I don't know. I was a very sensitive guy. So I imagine if if I was in a Freddy movie, uh, I would probably play it pretty similarly, uh, or at least just kind of be a very sensitive guy, uh, throughout it. Um, I, I'm always concerned with the well being of my friends and, and that's what he does in the film with his, his buddy in this. And so, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I, I like that it's, like this is the one movie out of the franchise that kind of abandons that, you know, final girl scenario and makes it more, uh, about, about a, a male kind of going through all that and how they handle all that with like, especially how things unfold in the end and this idea of like being born from ashes, um, uh, is really, really, really fascinating. 
Right. So I, I, there's just a lot going on here. I don't know how much of it was intentional and how much of it is just kind of like a happy accident or some of it just not going the way that they wanted it to. But uh, it's a fascinating movie to discuss. Um, and there's a lot more that we could probably sit here and pick apart, especially if we were to able to, you know, do like a commentary type thing and then be like, oh, yeah, this and that and that scene and um, but, uh, I, I really enjoy this one. I find it scary. I find it fun. Um, I mean, I really enjoy that dance sequence because I'm, I mean, like any honest person can say that they went through something like that where they're just like dancing. I don't know, whatever. No, uh, I know. I, no. you know, you agree. And it's, it's, you know, I think we've all done that. You know, at least you and I have done that. Not together yet, which I hope soon. Yeah, but, we got to do a karaoke or something. Yeah, you're you're sitting in your room. You have to clean your room. And you start dancing. But Just being like, silly. And... Silly. But the, the way that the camera angles and the camera shots are yeah. just insane. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah, It's weird. very Joel Schumacher-esque. Yes. Uh, bat nipples. Uh, a little toy bat with. Oh my goodness, it's it's interesting. Twerking against your dresser to close it. Yes, it's just <laughs> it was over the top, but still, like you see it, and it's like I think they're showing how this kid is like a normal kid, and like he's kind of like a sweet kid, innocent or whatever, and that like I think it makes the transformation all that more terrifying. I think, but. Also, yeah, he's not he's not like a football jock or something like that kind of going through it. It's just it's like more of like a, a normal kid or somebody like myself going through high school, even though I did play baseball. But I was never like uh, amongst the, the most popular kids. Um, but uh, so that's why I identify with Mark Patton's character a lot. But uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 from 1985. You can uh, find this on Blu-ray, DVD, a bunch of other things in sets. Or VHS, too. And VHS, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, check this out. And just like, if you haven't, if you forgot about it, I think you're going to come in there and you're, I think part of these like, damn, this is good. And the other part's going to be like, wow, how did this get made, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty surprising. Um so, yeah, I guess it, it's going to be playing at Fantastic Fest, like I said. So if you haven't seen it in a while um, and you like horror festivals or horror movies, there's going to be quite a few there. So you can go see it at Fantastic Fest and watch that documentary that I was talking about, which I would love to. I really want to, like, really get into that documentary. But I tried to provide just, like, what it's about and just that it's 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 good. Um, the only thing that I wish it had more of uh, the documentary that is, is that, uh, most of the discussions, the heated discussions that, that are in the film, it's with Mark Patton talking to the writer or the director. And I kind of wanted more moments of them talking to just them alone, the writer and the director, So their guards, not as up right. uh, to kind of get a more dimensionality there. But, uh, overall, I think just uh, what he set out to do, he, he, he accomplished with uh, the, these directors. Um, so, uh, yeah, Scream Queen, yeah, see that as well. There you go. Uh, that's, um, that's our, that wraps our episode up. Episode 66, My Bloody Podcast. We're on Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and Spotify. 
And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, excellent stuff. And we will be back next week. I'm Brian Kluger with BoomstickComics.com and HighDefDigest.com. And uh, Preston Barta, he is all over the place. Tell him where you're at, good man. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Preston Barta. Um, you can find my writing in the Ditton Record Chronicle. That's Ditton, D-E-N-T-O-N-R-C.com. Uh, you can look in the Entertainment and Movies tab and find my stuff. Uh, I didn't write, it, write a review this week. Uh, Nothing's coming I, out this week. Nah, not really. I, I did see the movie Don't Let Go, which is, I guess is a thriller with David Oyelowo, which I, I kind of liked. Uh, so I interviewed David Oyelowo for that film. So I'm just writing a feature piece about that. That'll come out probably by the time this, uh, this, uh, podcast is up. Um, but I wrote a fall movie preview piece. That was my big thing for this week. Um, and then you can find me also on freshfiction.tv where I'm the features editor. There you go. And we'll be back next week again. Episode 67 next week. It'll be a doozy. And we love you all. Thank you for listening.